This is Belonging, a podcast that explores being alive in the age of loneliness. I'm your host, Becca Piastrelli, a writer, mother, and community tender currently living on the ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people in present-day Marin County, California. In this show, we explore topics like rites of passage, cultivating meaningful community, seasonal and cyclical living, and what it means to be a good ancestor in these times. I have thought-provoking conversations with friends, teachers, elders, and ancestral medicine keepers to help support you in bringing more meaning and connection to your life. I also pop in here and there to share updates and learnings from my own story, because we were meant to do this together, cosmically holding hands as we walk the spiral of life. You can expect to be challenged by new or old ideas, face your beliefs and what systems informed them, get curious and brave to tell the truth about the deeper, harder things, and feel comforted in the knowing that you don't have to navigate it all alone. Hello, hello. Welcome back, or welcome for the first time to Belonging the Podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here. So thrilled to share a very special episode, a three-way conversation with Ariella Daly, aka Beekeeping in Skirts, and Megan McGuire, aka Forest Whisperer. And these are mamas and Earthways practitioners and special folk, special folk I I came across in in very different spaces and somehow we've connected to that. I met Ariella Daly. She was a in-person guest teacher when I was in an herbal apprenticeship program or a course called The Folk Medicine and Magic of Old Europe with my former teacher, Liz Miliarelli. And she came for a day and spoke about the honeybee and natural beekeeping and, um, the Melissae and the oracular bee priestesses of ancient Greece. She just like wooed me with her words. And then we kept up on good old Instagram. And then Megan McGuire, I learned about from Lara Valeda Vesta in her program and then started seeing on Instagram and we started chatting. And when I was preparing for the birth of Atlas, I came across her article that was all about Northern European birth traditions. So I've had also, I've had these amazing women on the podcast before. So if you want to check them out, I interviewed Ariella Daly in episode 47, The Kindred Call of the Honeybee. And I interviewed Megan McGuire in episode 82, Mothering as Ancestral Reverence. But today the conversation is not about beekeeping or mothering as ancestral reverence. Actually, it definitely is about mothering as ancestral reverence. Megan actually called us together. So this all began as a series of voice memos, fully crediting Megan as the seed of this idea, who you'll hear her talk about it in our conversation. But basically, she's witnessed in her own, she just had her third baby uh, in her own way, things that both Ariella and I have also expressed openly, which is the creativity that has moved through us in order to create life 
physical human beings, but also create ideas and how at some point in that first year, that creativity, like it swells and then it sort of dries up. And that's interesting. And Megan was like, can we talk about that? And then, so we started having this unrecorded three-way voice memo situation for several weeks where we just shared all these hilarious stories and heartbreaking stories about how we did it, how we did it, how we worked and had babies and didn't work and navigated motherhood in the pandemic and found the village or lost the village or whatever it is. And I was like, wait, 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 I want to talk about this, but like, can we please record it? And Megan was like, let's go on your podcast. So we did. And what I love about this conversation is the fact that, oh my gosh, can you hear my little child thumping above? (laughs) This is literally how we do it. This is one of the reasons why we did this episode is because we, we were talking about how we're all so curious about how everyone does it. And just like naturally social media and the internet is the highlight reel of our lives. Like even this podcast, right? It's like the highlight reel of my life. I sort of have to get ready and I have to be in a good space to get on this microphone and talk to you. And something we're, we're constantly curious about is like the how, like I'm just someone who's like, okay, what time do you wake up? How do you wake up? When do you feed your child? Or if you don't have a child, like, what do you feed yourself? And what are your rituals? And how do you do childcare? And how do you do this? And how do you make money? We're all wanting to know how, right? And there's just a lot of ways in which our culture makes us think we have to hide the how or feel ashamed of the how or whatever it is. And so that was the intention. And what's beautiful is we are three women with three big differences in in our paths of life because we're unique individuals. So there's me, I'm partnered and I live in a very expensive area. I have like quite a lot of support, a village I pay for. Then there's Ariella who is a single mother by choice who has to support herself solely as she is single mothering. And then there is Megan, who is partnered with three children and is working a nine to five and also does her incredible work uh, through her mythic time and forest whisperer work outside of that and has childcare in a different way than I do. And we thought, this is cool. Can we just like come together and talk about this? So that's what we do. We talk about our different experiences. We tap into ancestral mothering practices, combining like the ancient ways with the modern times, particularly how our phones (laughs) were the way we did life and how important they were, the ways we felt like hypocrites and the ways we, we sort of wished it gone differently. And yeah, of course, you know, we talk about revillaging or our struggles, our struggles to find the village, our struggles to create the village, our struggles when the village didn't show up for us. We talk about money and paying for the village. And we talk about everything and anything in between. I'm just, I think it's really special. And I'm just so grateful to Megan for calling us together to do this. So whether you're a mother or not, or a business owner or a caregiver or anything, that this resonates with. I hope I hope you find it helpful. I will also let you know that if you are listening to this in real time, I know a lot of people don't, but if you are listening to this in the spring in the Northern Hemisphere or the fall of the Southern Hemisphere 2022, beginning of May, we're doing a giveaway. 
uh, I'm so excited. So each of us is giving away something. So I am giving away a signed copy of my book, Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. Ariella is giving away her Kindred Bees lecture series on bees, kinship, and bee tending. And Megan is giving away her Mothering as Ceremony workshop. And this is all being done on Instagram. So head on over to my Instagram at Becca P. Estrelli or forest.whisperer, who's Megan, or beekeeping in skirts, Ariella. And there are instructions on how to enter the giveaway. I'm pretty excited about that. I've always wanted to do one and now we're doing one. So check that out. Let me see. Is there anything else to share with you? Just thank you for being here. I hope this conversation serves you in all the ways it needs to. Here's our conversation. She's with her nanny out on a walk, maybe about to nap. So that's exciting. Oh, walk nap. Yes, she still naps in a stroller really happily. That's so nice. And then your three babies, Megan, they're in daycare, all of them, or school. So kindergarten and then two are in daycare. And the youngest one doesn't nap. He refuses to nap pretty much. He doesn't nap? Yeah. This weekend he took um, like two 15-minute naps each day. What? Yeah, my mom was like, I don't know how you do it. All of my kids napped. Also, she co-slept with all of us until we didn't want to anymore. And I always thought I would co-sleep. And my kids are so, like, they rotate in the bed, like, like they're turning multiple times in a circle through the night. And my mom co-slept with them one night while I was pregnant to give me a break. And she was like, I, I can't co-sleep with your kids. And she has, like, Years of experience co-sleeping. See, it's not me. It's my children. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, okay. Here we are together diving into motherhood talk. Um, I am so grateful to you, Megan, a.k.a. Forest Whisperer, for bringing Ariella Daly, a.k.a. Beekeeping in Skirts, and myself together. So I was wondering if you could share with uh, the people, the good people tuning in from wherever and whenever, why why you called us together and what you want to chat about today. Yes. Thank you, Becca. I'm so glad you invited us on. I've been watching you, Becca, and you, Ariella, have babies in the last year and a half. And I had a baby less than a year ago, and I noticed this arc of creativity where it seemed like during pregnancy and then initially postpartum, all three of us had an incredible amount of creative output. And then this wasn't my experience with my first two, so I won't say that this is the universal experience of women going through pregnancy and postpartum. But I noticed this similar pattern where we were so engaged and just felt like we were connected to source and there was so much flow happening. 
And then at some point in the first year, and that kind of hit at different times for each of us, we had a period where we had to pull back and take a break from that and physical exhaustion and babies changing and needing different kind of attention and partners going back to work and just a change in how we were connecting to our creativity all contributed to that happening. And so I thought it'd be really fun to compare notes on our experience with those things and how how it played out for each of us. Yeah. Ariella, I feel like I'm going to pass it over for you to share like what your experience was, particularly if you want to share any part of your story of being a single mother by choice and knowing you were going to have to work pretty much right after birth and how that all worked for you. Boy, did I try to create a situation where I wouldn't have to work pretty much right after birth, but that's not exactly how it all went down. So I probably, when I was living in Portland in 2016, I, I decided to move to this area just in case I didn't meet someone and ended up wanting to have a baby on my own. And that is what happened. So I had a plan and kind of took a few years, but 2020 ended up being the year that all the pieces came together. And despite the pandemic, it was the time. And I got pregnant via a donor on the first try and brought this beautiful child into existence. And it was my lifelong dream come true but it's hard. <laughs> it's so hard. And I have a lot of support. I live with a sister. So she has a, an auntie all the time. And when I first was setting myself up for postpartum, I suffered in my earlier teens and 20s from a lot of anxiety and depression. And I know that I'm predisposed to that. So I was worried about postpartum, especially after suffering a miscarriage a decade before and having a lot of postpartum anxiety. So I set myself up to have a lot of support and to take what I thought would be a full eight weeks off, which was not actually that much time, but I didn't, I didn't know how else to run my business. What I found though, was in those first weeks, there's so much in between liminal space. So there's, you know, there's all these night nursings and kind of like, you're just sitting there with a sleeping baby or nursing baby and you're trying to sleep when they sleep, but maybe you're not always tired when they're tired, although you're tired all the time. Sort of like loose, it was very loose structured. There wasn't actually a lot of structure. And I had set up a lot of support for myself. I had two friends who came in and stayed and then my mom came and stayed. There was so much creative, like middle of the night time and nursing or like I couldn't literally move I had a baby sleeping across me so I like put up some pillows and put up my computer and I had you know the outline for my book come through and then just like started a few pages and then just hit that thing that Megan's talking about where everything changed and I haven't really get back to my creative projects so yeah I think there's something to that in between time where I didn't have a lot of expectations on myself and a lot more creativity came through. But the other thing that was happening at that time is that I was being tapped by the shift network to do this seven week course. And so suddenly I was like doing marketing and doing all these interviews and doing all this prep way sooner than I thought I would be for um, postpartum. Yeah. So it was a lot of extra work I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Right. Like things you want to say yes to things you want to do. And you're like, how do I honor like this postpartum cave and like this sleep deprivation? And also like, I'm not going to say no to these things. Like I, 
my dream was to publish a book. And I got the book deal and then I got pregnant a week later and like they were just had to happen at the same time. And every time I get really, so I had to edit the book one month postpartum. I've talked about a lot in this podcast about how like I would never do it again, but I did it. And when people are like, you're so amazing. I'm like, no, it sucked. But also in the moment I was just like, this is my dream. My child who took me a long time to have too, and a book and I, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And I don't really, I didn't really want to be patted on the back for it because I was like, this feels messed up, but also it's a blessing. But yeah, I guess my experience, I'm remembering, I was looking at pictures of me in the first couple months, you know, when you just take so many selfies with your precious baby and you're like, this is my amazing life. Just so many pictures of you smelling their head. <laughs> yeah. And I was noticing that my nails looked really strong and beautiful and my hair looked really good and my skin was glowing. And then it's not looking that way now. <laughs> like there's definitely more depletion in my body and there's probably a lot of physiological breastfeeding stuff. I'm extended breastfeeding. But I think there's actually a connection there mm -hmm. in those first couple months where like there are hormones pumping, right? Oh, yeah. And I'm breastfeeding and I, I have adrenaline to keep this baby alive, which is why I couldn't sleep, you know, and like the oxytocin's flooding. And I, I was, I struggled, but I was also in a, a different realm. And I think in addition to like nail collagen <laughs> and breast milk, I was feeling creative flow. I really, I taught, I just did so much Instagram posting. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to talk. I wanted to be seen. I wanted to share, 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 share. I kicked my podcast up immediately and I was just going. And then I think I hit the wall around eight months. I hit the wall where also Atlas had a really, really intense sleep moment. I don't know. This term regression is very controversial, but it was like two months of like gnarly wake-ups, angry, crying wake-ups, no no relief wake-ups, crying, holding a crying baby, and everything just dried up. And that's when I ended up taking one of two sabbaticals and pretty much shutting down everything possible in my business, which I had partner financial privilege to do. And I thought a lot about what if I didn't and how hard that would have been and is for so many. And I'm just emerging now. Atlas is almost 20 months and I'm just feeling the sap rising a little. So, yeah, that was my experience. I'm wondering, you, Megan, you have you have three children, which I'm just like, bow down. <laughs> uh, yeah, what's been your experience? I really like that you mentioned that you got your book deal and then you got pregnant a week later because I want to tie in the pregnancy side of it, too in addition to the postpartum discussion, because that was something that really happened to me in this pregnancy, this last pregnancy, where I I had never taught any online classes before. I have a conventional day job, and I just felt like so much creativity and so many things I wanted to say. I felt like I had to put it out there and, and express it and make it available. And I did that in September. I taught my first class that I'd ever taught. And then I got pregnant in October. And so I feel like sometimes there's this cosmic 
thing happening in our lives where we're just these conduits of creativity. And I'm not really an astrologer, but if I was, I bet there was something happening in the stars that was making me a magnet for both creating ideas, creating spiritual practices, and creating a physical human being. And they're also connected or I don't see there being a huge difference even between those things. They're so interwoven. And there's times where I feel like as an individual, we can be magnets for different sorts of creation and and that it can sort of strike and it's really beautiful, but it's also overwhelming because pregnancy is really hard too. I mean, Becca, you you shared a lot about how hard your pregnancy was morning sickness, exhaustion. I mean, pregnancy is so hard where I feel like in the first trimester, my mode is like I do one thing per day and that thing can be going to work or it could be cooking dinner or it could be exercising, but I really have to pick only one thing and that's all I can do. So it was hard being in that place where I felt like there were there were so many ideas flowing through me, but then my physical energy was, was low and I had a lot of nausea. So yeah, but just, I noticed maybe some of those parallels and I'm curious, Ariella, if you had anything like that in your pregnancy, if like there, like at the beginning of your pregnancy or before your pregnancy, if you were in an extra magical phase. Just the circumstances that I got pregnant under doing an insemination and all that, I, it felt so sterile in my mind, but it ended up being the most magical, like three major animal sightings that day and all the stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you can share that. It's really special. And then I did two inseminations. The, the the person came up to give me the genetic material in the morning at 7 a.m. And then we did a second one at 7 p.m. with a midwife. And this was pandemic time. So it was like literally like meeting me at the door and they were staying in their RV with their whole family, like kids too. And um, the only reason they could was because of the pandemic, honestly, because anyway, they were between 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 things and um yeah bees swarmed which is a form of birth for the bees and like a huge potent sign and then i went out to the swarm and found an an antler to a a buck underneath uh which to me is like always been the sacred beloved the sacred masculine like my whole life and so that like hit that spot of grief for a partner it just was like hey it's gonna be okay Mm -hmm. we're here the more than seen is here or more than human the unseen is here and then I went out and checked on my bees. And while I was in the hive, like had just seen the queen. I was holding the frame with the queen and this giant gopher snake slid by my foot. And I have a whole thing with rattlesnakes, like huge phobia. And I just stayed totally calm and like assessed that it wasn't a rattlesnake while holding all of the queen bee, <laughs> all these stinging bees. And it was fine. And then the second one, I think it was the second one that that, that was the time. So Yeah. Apparently, it can be magical even if it's not the way you think it's supposed to go. Um, but I actually ended up taking a leaf from your book, Becca, like life book. I said yes to the shift network thing, which happened during my pregnancy. So pregnancy was full on pandemic, got a lot worse after I got pregnant in May, right? 
wildfires. And amidst all of that, I was just in this very, like, very cocooned place with a lot of ideas. I think you named it, Megan. That's like, I haven't had that in a while where there's just like the flood of ideas coming through. And that was really fun. Like, it's almost like I couldn't catch them all. And then um, the Shift Network approached me to do this seven-week course, which ended up launching later, uh, you know, after I gave birth. So there was this sort of like what that meant for me as a single parent was a source of secure income coming in that would, what, what ended up happening is, is enable me to take a full month off. I took the month of December Mm -hmm. off and I took that sabbatical. It was like, I took that month off and it just, I just lost the creative everything, which is probably appropriate. Um, but it never, it hasn't come back since December. So that was like 10 months. I haven't had a flood of ideas. I've like been banging my head against this book plan for a while and just having to let it go. And then there's no time because once they're older, you don't have a nursing baby and you're like thinking, writing some creative post with your thumb (laughs) and not like up in the middle of the night while they're napping, having this weird creative spurt. It's different. Yes, like my child, if I am even looking at my phone while I am nursing him to sleep, he knows and he's like reaching his hand up and swatting it away, even though I'm like really surreptitiously trying to kind of turn the screen so it's not shining any light so he can't perceive it. He can sense that it's there. I think he can read my brainwaves, which I totally believe because if my husband is on his phone while I'm, you know, while we're in bed and I'm trying to fall asleep, I can, I can hear his brainwaves happening next to me. And yeah, with, with the babies, it's like when they're just in this really new postpartum and they're so sleepy and they sleep so much and, and you just plug them onto the boob and they're just happy for an hour. It is so easy to create, especially if you have a phone. And we've talked about this leading up to this podcast that we did a lot of work on our phones and they're so movable, they're so portable, they're tiny little computer, pocket computers that you can bring into bed with you, you're sideline nursing, (laughs) you're typing with your thumb, you're dictating, and then they get older and they really need your attention, your full consciousness and you can't be multitasking and then it becomes so much harder and at the same time I think the physical depletion is catching up where the physical outputs of breastfeeding and the sleep deprivation all kind of gets compounded and that kind of hit us at different times. I've felt it around four to five months is when that starts for me with each of my children. And I've found that's like the hardest phase for me. And it's also the time I'm always going back to work at my day job where I'm physically apart from my child that I hadn't been before. So that's kind of my doldrums. That's what I'm going to call this, this need for sabbatical kind of period or like this dry spell feels like the doldrums where before there was these wind in my sails and it was pushing and it was almost tempestuous where it was like too much. I can't even contain it all. Like the sails are billowed out and the wind is still pushing and it's a little bit wild. And then it kind of cuts off and they go slack 
and I'm just drifting there in the open ocean. <laughs> Since the four to five months, do you find another, has another creative swell come through? Uh, for me, it has recently in the last month or two, I've been feeling more creative again. And my baby is nine months. So I think for me, the four to nine month period is the hardest. Um, that's what I've noticed with my other babies. And now it's kind of coming back, though it's not to the same level it was before. I feel that the ideas are still are coming through a little bit more, but I have less time and less physical capacity to manifest them. The torture of all the ideas and no time to do them or the forgetting the next day. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I had an amazing idea. Why didn't I write it down? Like, I don't know. This whole working from the phone thing, I'm really glad we're talking about it. And we've been doing a lot of back and forth on voice memo on a chat, the three of us. And I was like, save this for the podcast where we were talking about how we really appreciate knowing how people do life because we are living in like a relatively villageless society where people are putting the highlight reels, like especially in pandemic life where I just found myself sitting as a new mom in my like home on the hill, looking out the window being like, how are you all doing this? <laughs> and making assumptions that they all had it better figured out than I do. And so what I loved is we were all like, yeah, I worked on my phone. And I was like, yeah, actually I got like a thumb cramp and a clicky thumb from typing. And I'm a thumb typer on my phone. And then I also dropped the phone on Alice's head one time <laughs> and <laughs> because I'm sidelining and I'm holding the phone up. And like, I was just sharing that with you all because it's like, this is how we do it. And I have a friend, Christine Gutierrez, Cosmic Christine on Instagram, who's been so awesome. I think her baby's like around nine months too. She's been running her business and she's just been like showing herself on Instagram working. She's like, my baby will only nap in the carrier on my body. And she's running like a pretty big as far as like revenue and customers business. And she's like, this is how I'm doing it. It's really intense. And this is how I'm doing it. I had to get glasses three months in. You, you had the thumb click. I mm. my eyes from all the late night screens. Yeah, which is like so not ancestral ways. <laughs> you know, working on us, all this blue light in our faces as we're like breastfeeding our babies and like trying to give them the most, you know, like I don't know what term we want to use, like the most innate experience, human ancestral experience of like attachment and like mommy baby died connection as we're on our little screens trying to like mm -hmm. you know yeah. <laughs> live our bliss <laughs> it's just I like know, it's well this is real yeah yeah i often feel hypocritical with that in myself i'd say all three of us want to live close to the earth right it's a big part of who we are and we want to teach that to our children which involves not just being close to the earth, but look close to the, the idea of community. So the village, as well as the more than human world, the animals and whatnot. And so I love the idea of, for instance, like, oh yeah, nighttime is for cultivating the dark. And if there's going to be light, it should be candlelight and firelight and how sweet and romantic. But the reality is sometimes at night, often, always, that's some of the only time I have to run a business and I have to put food on the table and, and do this full time. And also maybe have a little bit of like 
dead brain time where I am looking at reels. You know? yeah. Yeah. And I end up feeling hypocritical because I want to promote this other way. But the systems we live in doesn't support that. And I'm not living off the grid right now. I'm, you know, it, so it's this, <laughs> I just get into the like the shame spiral of what I should, should, should. And then I catch myself in that. But I, I want her to have that experience. And I want the hearth and I want the candlelight. And I also run a business from my phone. Yeah, it's the modern reality of motherhood. And I definitely feel that this pregnancy or this postpartum, I, I tried to listen to more podcasts and I listened to some really long audiobooks, like 40 hour plus audiobooks because I was trying to not have the blue light on. And I was thinking it felt a little closer to an ancestral practice because I was imagining that people might have been sitting around the fire telling stories in the dark and, you know, like the mammoth bone tent that I imagine our ancient ancestors were sharing where the nursing moms might be up and there might be an elder telling a story and people would be singing songs and we don't have that anymore. And so how do we replicate it in our individual homes and connecting through our phones is kind of the way that we do it. And it has, you know, it's not ideal in some ways, but it's like a portal. It's like my portal from my little mammoth bone tent in my bedroom to your mammoth bone tent in your bedroom. And collectively, through the magic of the internet, we're sharing that postpartum experience with each other. Though so it's more like people all kind of like, I'm connecting with other mothers. I'm connecting with like, you know people like you and it, then I don't have that diversity. I'm not connecting with elders as much. And so I'm kind of lacking on the, the diversity of the natural community, the ancient community. We have something we were talking about in our little back and forth uh, DMing. How did people do this um, before? If they were, if, if they were having, I don't remember who asked it, but if someone's having a creative spurt and they're a mother and they're a breastfeeding mother, how, 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 and someone, I think it was you, Megan, you shared this idea that, or, or fact, that women shared breastfeeding. And I didn't mm. know that. Can you talk a little bit more about your knowledge around that? Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure there's diversity among cultures, but I really believe that women were nursing each other's babies a lot in a lot of cultures. And that would have been totally normal and would, in fact, have been considered strange not to. Um, I was so I, I was reading in a book about ancient Irish practices that it was considered that every mother who breastfed a baby passed on part of her spiritual essence to that baby. And so the more people who breastfed a baby, the more spiritually gifted they would be. And when I read that, I was like, whoa, hang on, hold up a minute. That implies that more than one mom is nursing the baby. Can we just stop and talk about that a while? Like, how did that work? How many were there? You know, how how did they pass the baby around? And 
Uh, so I, I just have that reference because they were talking about, you know, a saint or something like, I don't remember, St. Patrick and how, who, how many women breastfed him. They wanted to know how many women breastfed him because that will tell us like how much spiritual authority we might attribute to him. Uh, so I just, I know intuitively too that they would have been sh- sharing breastfeeding and I can really, I've thought about this so much when I see women struggle with breastfeeding, like their milk's not coming in for many days. You know, some women, it takes like a week for their milk to come in and their baby's hungry. And there would have been other moms in the village or in the clan who would have had older babies who who would have had plenty of milk and could easily, you know, help breastfeed a newborn while a new mom's milk was coming in. And some moms have more milk than they need and are getting mastitis because their babies don't even need all that milk. And there's other moms who don't have enough milk and they're crying because their their baby, they're going to have to supplement with formula. And I think in the ancestral clan, they would have, it would have really just balanced out and that as a collective, we would have always had the right amount of milk for our babies, even if we don't as individuals. And I'm sure that there were times where a mom was like, I need to go, I need to go out to tend the garden, or I need to go visit the temple, or I'm going to leave offerings at the river and would have left her baby. And then another mom could have nursed that baby. And she probably was able to meet some of her creative impulses while other moms were there with their boobs ready to go and just able to step in. That's how I conceive of it. That makes me so emotional. And uh, I, when I was five months postpartum, my moon came back, my period came back, uh, and my supply dropped dramatically. And I have like a mom's group in my town. We all had babies at the same time and did – Zoom prenatal yoga together, and then we started doing it in the park. And then one day we decided we'd hug each other, and then one day we decided we'd hold each other's babies. And it was over the period of a year and a half. But three of them gave me their breast milk frozen, and it was so emotional when they brought it over because I I remember we just started talking about the fact that like, okay, you're going to help like build my baby's bones. You're going to help grow my baby's heart. You're going to help like push my baby's teeth through her gums. And I just, it just felt, I felt such relief. And I guess that could be the modern version. Although I remember there's like a famous news story of Salma Hayek being in some developing nation and saw a baby and she was breastfeeding her daughter and she just like picked up the baby and put her to her breast. And the whole world was like, wow. And she was like, this is what people do today. And I always think about Selma Hayek and how I, I would do the same thing. And I even have urges myself to want to breastfeed children to just support the mom because I know those nights, particularly those nights when I was just desperate for sleep, if someone would have just come in. And the only way to soothe her was at the breast. Oh my gosh, I would have loved that. But also like, Another thing is, 
I'm just always thinking about revillaging and being in an individualist society and how I also live in a single f- nuclear family home. So it's like, what am I even doing? But also <laughs> this is what I'm doing. And how I had a friend who just had a baby whose milk supply took a while. So I was posting around in Facebook groups about getting donor milk. And I, I realized you can't do that <laughs> because there's like legal stuff and health stuff. And then I was sort of seen as like, how can you trust other people putting their body they're what they eat. You don't know what they're eating and, and they can be mm. taking drugs. And it was mm. this really intense, like you can't trust people mm-hmm. experience. And I just realized I was in a different mindset mm-hmm. and I ended up finding milk for this friend and she, and it felt so good to give it to her. But I guess that's, I would love to continue along this path of Ariel, if I may, you talking about your social life, feeling like a dried up raisin. And you wanting to feel like a plump grape and how this could maybe be because we are pandemic mothers. This could maybe be because we live in a hyper individual society. Who knows what this reason is, but I had that moment of shock when people were like, how dare you ask for breast milk for a mother? She should, you know, she should not do that. And me being like, wait, what? Uh, That's not the life I signed up for. And the grief and pain of not getting what we need in that yeah i was i was one of the people who was an overproducer and did give milk to someone with a sick kid who was on formula and needed milk so i'm the other side of that and it's powerful it's a powerful feeling and i remember still having that moment of like handing off being like i'm really healthy i promise it's it's clean milk you know like we have that like Yeah. I think you just nailed it there, though, that trust, coming back into trust with humans and people. And for me, it's so much easier to form trust with the quote-unquote natural world, although we're all part of that nature, sometimes than humans. And I grew up with a strong village sense, even though I I was raised in a nuclear family. I grew up with a strong community. I've always had a strong community. And like you said, I don't, I don't know if it's my own, like extroversion has gone introverted. I don't know if that's it. Cause I'm a super extroverted person. I used to be someone that created the table for the people to come to. Uh, I don't know if it's a pandemic. I don't know if it's late stage capitalism. I don't know if it's isolation of being a single mother and having no time. And I know that partnered mothers also have no time. I don't know why, but I just really have hit a personal level of it. I don't recognize myself and the, the, I don't recognize myself, which again, classic like motherhood identity stuff, but I don't know how to be social with my friends. I don't know how to reach out to friends. I have a very immunocompromised person in my family. So I've had to be extra careful. And I've had two experiences lately where for my daughter's birthday in February and for my birthday, I sent out a call to the community for a gathering and I created the space and I, you know, and just for my daughter's birthday, one person came and for my birthday, one person responded. And so I canceled it <laughs> and, and it, it's in May and, and it's, I don't think anything's wrong with anybody. It's just that we, we're all so maxed. We're so busy. We're so stretched thin. And a lot of people are not parents in my community. And there's a lot of, like travel and fun. And I don't know, I project maybe they're working. I don't know, but 
I miss what I call like the open door policy, which is, or whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. but I want to live in a community and a house where friends can come over and walk in the door and they don't have to call ahead of time. They don't have to knock. They can just come in the door. Hey, brought some flowers. Hey, do you have any sugar? Whatever Mm -hmm. it is. I grew up with that and I don't know how to cultivate it right now. We're all so spread out. So yeah, feeling like a dried up raisin and I feel super insecure in a way I've never felt before around friendship. Yeah. Anybody else? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So I shared a story with you all when you were talking about this birthday party, and I'm just so sorry and angry about it Uh, because I, we had, so we had a early pandemic pregnancy and baby. And we, so the the whole baby shower thing was like a drive, drive up, drive by baby shower where people like RSVP'd. Yes. Lots of people RSVP'd. Yes. And I sat my big pregnant butt at the end of my driveway in a chair and Tim had like a cooler of drinks and like some music going and I waited for people to drive by and I waited and I waited and I waited and no one ever came. And I remember texting people and them being like, oh, I just figured something came up and I just figured it was popping because you're Becca and you know, you're the same, Ariel. like you're the community person. Like I just assumed and I was like, this, it hurt. It hurt. And I feel a little differently than you. I guess, I don't know if I'm in a, (laughs) I am working through something personally where I'm, I'm mad at people about it. I give grace to folks who, I give grace to, grace to folks who are like sick, caretaking, parents, grieving, you know, which is a lot of us, but I'm also like dig deep and like show up for your community. I'm so passionate about community care. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I feel a lot of shame and regret over the ways pre-parent Becca did not show up for her friends because she was too busy and, and, and under-resourced, which is, which was true. I was busy and and under-resourced and learning how to care for myself. But also like I could have made the space. And I think what I'm realizing now is like it doesn't actually take that much to show up for each other. Even if you can't come to the birthday party, like what can you do? And I feel a fire in my belly around this, around being able to do what you can for each other and consciously making space in your life. And I find I am, (laughs) and most people who are showing up for me are the ones who are the most taxed. Mm -hmm. You know, like why is it that the ones – the most passionate and most giving of village-like energy are the ones who really need to receive it. And maybe it's because the pain is that harsh. So I want the open door policy too. And I'm wondering if it's just going to be created by tired mothers. Yeah. My best friend is a single mom. I pretty much only have two friends, I will say. And one friend does have kind of an open door policy where she did show up on my door when I, my baby was maybe three months old and I was having a total meltdown, like crying and just weeping. And she came over with her six-year-old daughter who was like, whoa, whoa, should we leave? And my friend Jenny was like, no, we're just going to stay. I'm going to start this basket of laundry for you. I'm just going to bring this downstairs to your basement and put this in your laundry machine. And yeah, she's not somebody who has 
extra resources compared to my friends who don't have children or have a partner. And she's always reminding me like, hey, you got to remember to invite single parents to events because partnered parents are always grouping up and they, you know, like feel like they need to be matchy matchy. And and you got to invite people who don't look like you into your community. So that's something she's always teaching me. But beyond a couple friends that I have that are amazing, I have felt a real grief around not having support. And that's evolved over my three postpartums. So the the first postpartum, I made a meal train sign up and tried to organize some things. And like two people signed up for the meal train and there were, you know, like 50 empty slots of different different meals that people could bring. And then with my second baby, I really, I was feeling really depleted with my second. The third was actually easier than the second. I was, I don't know, so um, tired and so low energy and felt really desperate, like I desperately needed support and felt like because so few people had responded with my first baby that I didn't even want to ask because I was so, I knew that if I asked and there the support wasn't there, it would be so devastating that I just didn't even want to hear the no. Like I, I wanted to just power through then to have the emotional letdown of people not showing up. And then with the third baby, I felt like I was kind of just jaded, like, yeah, I asked for help and people didn't have the capacity to do it for whatever reason or didn't understand how deep the need was. And so we're just going to do it ourselves. And I do have a partner who was able to take off three and a half months from work. And so we were like, we're just going to do it ourselves and we're, we're just in it alone. But it didn't. I think I had just come to accept that. And so it didn't feel sad to me the third time. And I knew that we could handle it. And I knew that it would actually feel really good in some ways. Like I really enjoy postpartum and I describe it as postpartum elation. Like I feel so overjoyed in the first few months that there was, there isn't a lot of community and it feels really sad to know that it's not really there. And that sometimes when you ask, you get a no and it's yeah really like eats away at your soul to feel like you put yourself out there and were vulnerable and no one showed up really hits the like preteen in me they're the the, the <laughs> seventh grader in me. yeah just that social awkwardness yeah yeah it's so painful to get the no and i feel like as a culture we have to work on feeling including myself here feeling like emboldened to keep asking like it's like it's our birthright to get support Mm -hmm. and just because people say no doesn't mean we have to stop asking and that's like sounds so simple but it's it's really true that's like right a deep wound Mm -hmm. for a lot of us that's probably a product of like you know many generations of separating us from each other I have a story about that. So when my first baby was born, I had this idea that I really needed to like have 
intimate space with just my me, my husband, and my baby, and we were going to bond, and I didn't want to have too many visitors. And I included my mom in that because she and I didn't have a really good relationship at the time, and there was a lot of, like, bad feelings between us. And after a few days or a week, I texted her and said, wow, this is really hard. I cannot believe how hard this was. is. We're really struggling. And she wrote back and said, oh, you think you have it hard? Well, your dad didn't get to take off any time when I was born. And I had a C-section and you didn't. And I, when your, my last brother was born, um, so there's three of us. And she said, I was trying to take care of three kids, one of the newborn with a C-section with no support. And your dad wasn't around at all. And I was like, wow, that's all true. But like the fact that you need to bring that up in this moment where I'm really opening up and vulnerable about how hard of a time I'm having and your response is to like talk about your own postpartum wounds. Like she couldn't really be there for me because she hadn't healed the trauma that she had from her own postpartum experiences. And like how many of our mothers had experiences like that? Oh, and she told me that her mom came to visit and expected her, my mom, to make dinner for my grandma. I was like, what? Why would she expect that? I mean, she had babies. She knows how hard it was. Why didn't she take care of you as your mother? And she wasn't there for my mother either. And so many of us, our parents didn't have support in postpartum and didn't have that modeled to them. So we're, we're breaking the cycle. Like we're talking about the needs of postpartum and maybe our needs are being fully met, but we're like building the baseline cultural knowledge that this is what we need postpartum. And maybe the support networks haven't caught up, but at least we see the goal. We see what it needs to be. We see where the needs are and we're building toward it so that when our children have kids, I think we're going to have that support in place. That's my dream. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've been thinking a lot about my mother's generation and my grandmother's generation. In particular, like those, that time period in history, particularly here in the, like, in the United States, because those two generations and on my family were well-established here in the United States. Um, not so not recent immigrants and similar, like real detachments, like twilight births, like breastfeeding seen as like uncivilized, <laughs> just being seen and not heard to grandparents. And then I have a grandmother who was just forever changed, like probably deemed hysterical after her births and um, ended up getting shock therapy treatment in the sixties. And I just like wonder how much of that comes from being an unsupported mother. And then the story that came out of it was like, well, they did it. They're strong. They did it. And I'm like, we're talking about a generation of like pretty bitter women and unwell. I mean, at least in the conversations I'm having, both on this podcast and, and, you know, privately of that, that same sort of 
story, and I don't think it's all of our stories, but there is that thread. And I I know that I had an experience of being just feeling desperate and underwater in the early days of postpartum and being met with like, well, I don't even remember. Like I've literally blocked it out. I'm sorry, that sucks. Mm. What's that like? I don't even remember. I had a little bit of both, actually. Really? It's it's so complex. Like, yeah. The support is, you know, my mother showed up and was, has been amazing. And yeah. there's been some of that. But I think about when you're talking about this, and the, the, like the, the train of capitalist patriarchal progress has continued to move, speeding, speeding, speeding towards where we are today. And women's roles, um, the expectation of a woman's role hasn't changed that much in terms of the family, and yet the support system has. And so now that woman is, you know, meant to be the sole sole breastfeeder and f- food provider and meal provider for the whole family, and and, it, it, and maybe and be working probably full, full-time or part-time or be f- having to take work off even though they might not want to because someone has to be the breadwinner and someone has to stay home with the kids and all of these. I mean, this is such a complex discussion, but it's all these different things that have happened that I think those generations were still, and we are too, still having to contend with what a woman's role is supposed to be in a rapidly changing capitalist society. And, and we're sitting here sort of picking up the pieces of obviously that doesn't work. Only now are we even having a conversation that what we're doing as parents um, and how we're responding is a response to a systemic problem. And there's generations of, you know, displacement and uh, like actual strategic tearing apart of cultures and identities uh, in all forms throughout colonialism um, and immigration and whatnot. I mean, it, it's all very complex. And so we're left in this moment of it. I don't know what thing is the, uh, the driving force behind why it's so hard to have community and village, but we do know that we need it and that we have to look further back to remember to be reminded through things like myths and stories and history and folklore, things we already know in our bones. And we hit those moments. We hit that little piece of folklore, that story about women in Ireland breastfeeding that just like brings every goosebump up on my skin and I want to cry. We find those and something resonates. And I, I, I'm always wondering, like, is it just like, it, it, this exists in my DNA. It exists in my bones. And I'm, I like some part of my soul is just seeking water and knows what water looks like, but is still just a little bit unskilled as to how to read the signs to get there. And I I feel like we're all doing that. That's why we have this conversation. Yeah. Ari, I'm curious what your vision is for your daughter, Aurora's life, which is such a big question. (laughs) I I have this question for all of us, but I I would love to start with Ariella because you had such a big vision. You really called magnetizer into your womb in this really magical way. And one, I'd love to know, like, how do you get support now as a single mother? And what is your vision for greater village support for you and Aurora moving forward? So I had an assumption 
because I had such a strong community and because so many people in this area where I live that I had gone through the college years with were having babies at the same time that, you know, I would say I might not have a partner. I might not have all my ducks in a row with my business, but at least I don't have to worry about community. My kid is going to get to ra- be raised the way I was raised, which like how many parents, you know, like if you had something that was good, like, well, back in my day, there were still polar bears. Like, sorry, that's so fatalistic, but like, right. How do I live in a way where I, I have my daughter fall in love with what is real and present for her? So she might not have any baby friends. It breaks my heart, but she's also a happy child. Ideally, I would like her to have baby friends and then lifelong friends. I'm still friends with my first friend. So how do I not project that onto her? That's a big thing for me. How do I not project being able to run through the forests in the backyard? Because there aren't forests in the backyard right now where I live. So ideally, my hope for her would be to continue to fall in love with nature despite climate change and to have lots of access to it. And to, you know, in my, in my ultimate dream, I'd love to live in a situation where like people were able to buy a few houses and knock down some fences and grow food together and have bees and, 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 um, I don't even know where to do that. Do I stay in California? What about the fires? (sighs) So that's a vision, but permission is the biggest one to just be herself. And I think my biggest role is to help her fall in love with the world because there's a lot of pointing at what's wrong with the world. And I think that mm. the only way we heal the world and fix the world or be in it is to fall in love with the many aspects of it that are lovable, including nature experienced in the midst of climate change. So that's one thing. And how am I getting support right now? You know, we talked about this as a in our in our previous discussions together, the three of us, but uh, the idea of um, paying for the village so yeah. I pay more than my rent in a nanny for 20 hours a week. And I live in California, so you know, I'm in two-bedroom, and it's, it's 3000 So just to give you a sense, you know, so I'm, I'm paying $1,500, um, and then I have to pay more than that for a nanny, and she's amazing. And I, am, and I have a sister who helps out with bedtime routines and things like that. And then, you know... I do still see friends occasionally, <laughs> but there isn't anyone else. There's literally no one I can take and drop my kid off with. There's no one I know. All these people who had babies, I've tried to go on walks with them. I've tried to reach out. I'm now I'm just too shy to reach out. You know, I, I don't, I don't know what to do about that. So that's it. It's my support system is my sister's which is amazing. My sisters are amazing, but it's a very tiny family. It's a very Mm. small experience. And what gives me hope is, I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Plotkin's work. He wrote a book called Nature and the Human Soul, and he has these two diagrams. And one of them is about our current culture as an egocentric culture. And the other diagram is Mm. what it would be like to live in an eco, E-C-O centric model. Mm. And he talks about for the young child and toddler age, he has these beautiful names. Um, I think it's still the, um, this one is the explorer in the garden. So their center mm-hmm. of gravity is still 
and f- throughout childhood is still the, the parents or the, the family unit. Mm-hmm. And it isn't till um, preteen and adolescence that that center of gravity goes towards the more social. So I just remind mm-hmm. myself that like, for now, her center of gravity is me and my sister and this mm-hmm. tiny garden that we live in, this tiny backyard. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. But mm-hmm. long term, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to move. <laughs> I got to find people. I miss my best mm. friends. They're in different states. What about you all? <laughs> well, you should both definitely move to my neighborhood. Also, all of my friends should move to my neighborhood. It's really cheap here. <laughs> so, yeah, my dream for my children, I would say, so I have two boys and a girl, unless they tell me otherwise when they're older. So for now, I'm assuming I have two boys and a girl, and I... I really like something I saw on Instagram recently about how feminism kind of got it wrong. And instead of women trying to be like men, men should have tried to be like women and still should. Like instead of trying to be super achieving and, you know, focused on careers and working 80 hours a week and, you know, exporting our children to daycare what if men came back home and the home was sort of the hub and like a partnership society that our ancestors may have had where, where men were, you know, working the farm and women were working the farm and they were doing it together and they were all, you know, they were supporting children together. And um, that I'd like to see that, that my, that my, sons grow up to idealize what we currently project as like feminine characteristics or women's roles and that that is what they view as their highest achievement and that they can have families that the center like like Ariella was saying the center of gravity is the family and not the career and the the center of gravity is is their community and their relationships and i just love this recently i've been looking at some dad instagram accounts and i love when they in their bio line the first word is dad like yes you know that the dads are really embracing the dad identity and putting that first as the first thing like their most important identity name as being dad so oh, that's something that I'd like for for my sons is to have more of a matrifocal culture where everyone can be a mother no matter what your gender identity like mothering is an activity that anyone can do and that should be elevated and when we care for people in our community we're mothering them as like that caretaking role and how I'm getting support is, like Ariella said, paying for the village, pay for daycare. And I think in some ways I'm really okay with that. Like, I think that not everything has to be a non-financial transaction. Like, if I feel like I'm paying somebody and this is a sacred reciprocity that I have with my daycare provider who's it's an in-home daycare, so it's one person. It's not a big center. It's not a big corporation, and I'm 
I have a real relationship with her and I'm paying her well for what she's doing. That is like the sacred reciprocity that community is built on. And we happen to use money to make it work. And then we also just like pay for lots of things. Like we pay for having our groceries delivered. We pay for takeout when we can't cook. And I want to hire a house cleaner and all the things because we don't have a village living with us in our home. We don't have parents or siblings or anyone living with us. So we kind of need to use our financial assets to get that. And there's, you know, maybe that's not ideal in some ways because you need those relationships too. But it's kind of an exchange of freedom. Like we're focused on freedom of the individual rather than duty. And I see different cultures emphasize one one of those things a little more than the other. And it's not innately bad. There's just trade-offs. We have a lot of freedom. We can get up and move and we can move to a new place and try to build a new community. And downside is we don't have strong ties of duty that bind us to having to support people, but it gives us a lot of freedom. So no culture is perfect. Yeah. Every culture has, you know, has its strengths and its weaknesses. And so we're trying to come back to the balance. <laughs> totally. Oh, I really am glad I asked this question. And I'm really inspired by both of your answers. And it's helped me think about my answer. <laughs> because what I'm realizing, this is like pretty vulnerable, but I really want to share it. Like what I'm realizing is like the way I'm doing life is not the way I want to be doing life. And part of that is an acceptance of like, no culture is perfect and we're just meeting life where it's meeting us. And part of this is like, I, I do because I now have a, you know, like I've birthed a descendant in the time of like climate collapse and all these things. And I feel so strongly about revillaging and I just feel like an ancestral healing imperative, I think, particularly from my mother line that my family system is definitely in transition towards the vision. And who knows if we'll like, I can't romanticize the vision so much, just like we romanticize the village, which probably had a lot of like problems with gossip. And like, who knows what else? <laughs> what if there was non-monogamy? Who knows? But I do know like, okay, so my current situation is my partner is a high income earner in tech in San Francisco. You know, we have a high amount of wealth. We live in a very expensive part of the world and I can afford to pay for the village. So I have a full-time nanny who also does one date night a week. So that's like $5,000 a month here that I pay for childcare. I had doulas night and day, mm -hmm. not every night, but three nights a week when uh, my child was born. I had support. And I also felt like this isn't the same. I'm not saying I'm not so grateful for it, but this isn't the same as what I'm craving. And also Tim and I come from family systems that really value the sort of pinnacle of life success is to have made it alone and to leave each other alone. So it's not like I was about to change the family culture by bringing like the abuelas back. Like that's not, you know, we have sweet visits and that's okay. I've let go of that. 
it was very grief stricken, but I've let go of that. And my child has wonderful grandparent relationships, but it's not, I can't be the village there. So we pay for the village. And, um, also like my partner's job is, is killing him. And we're making plans to radically change our life to be more. I loved what you shared, Megan, about matrifocal family being the reason, the raison d'etre. Like, and that is the gift Atlas gave us because we were both very career focused for 15 years in, in partnership before we had our child and everything got blown up. And all of a sudden, like literally, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it's like, why? why and the why just grew roots deep in the earth for me and really for my partner which delighted me and brought deep relief so we are working on him extracting himself gradually sustainably and aria i don't think i can be in california with these fires the i want her to breathe air in the fall and the summer and I feel fear in my body. I could burst into tears right now. It's just so fucking hard. But I just can't do it here. I mean, like, I brace myself. And we just had rain yesterday, and I, I just could feel in my nervous system how I need that, but, like, how desperate I am for it. And I love this place. And I don't think I can stay. And I know that's a massive privilege, but I don't think I can stay. Do I take my parents? Do they want to go? So that's the real deal from over here. <laughs> it's like, and do I move somewhere and start over as far as community? Can I trust in my ability to create community, which feels like so much work? But yeah. Yeah. I was just having that conversation with one of my best friends who's who did move away and has been away for many years. And it's just, she just said, you know, we're thinking of moving back despite the fires and despite everything because we just haven't been able to create community. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, right. What do we do? And I just want to, I know that perhaps if you're in a, in the West in a place with wildfires, you know, Colorado, California, Oregon, it's really acute and in your face, but we're at the beginning of climate migrations. Yeah. And we have the privilege to potentially choose it before being forced to, but it's, it's so gargantuan. It's so overwhelming to me to try to imagine how to raise my child and not transfer all my PTSD. Like yesterday was windy after the rain and still I was just, Windy. Oh my God. Like I want to be, I want to love wind again, but I can't, yeah. I can't love wind because wind, even in the spring now is dangerous. So, and you've been in the epicenter where you live. It's literally burned many times. I didn't have yeah. it. I got it last year, year 2020, after mm. four, 2017, 18, 19, 20, four years of wildfires, even wearing a mask. And now I've asthma. And I just think about this tiny child with these beautiful lungs 
And I have yeah. all the expensive equipment for air filters. I invest yeah. in it. And, you know, just stuck inside with this sense of outside is dangerous and it's not safe. And that is so privileged to say that that's a new experience because I do know that that's an experience for a lot of people in many different places that, you know, but I'm so invested in breaking down our relationship to nature and the wild is, is bad, is dangerous as other. I believe in respect for nature. I grew up in rattlesnake country, but I, I it, the circumstances of, of like wildfire and pandemic makes us even more isolated. And so, you know, or like these big winter storms, for instance, or, you know, more and more tornadoes, whatever it is, how it's requiring us to come together as a village just to survive. And that's something that's happened in my community is we started having talks like, do we move as a community? Where do we go? What would that look like? Mm-hmm. Back in 2020. Anyway, dark mm-hmm. thoughts for a spring day. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, my question was our vision. And for you and I in particular, that's a big part of it to to think about. I remember seeing, yeah, you both post about the smoke and Ariella, I think, posting how for the entire month you couldn't go outside or maybe it was one day or something and feeling, yeah, feeling so bad for you. And I was actually thinking recently about the smoke because I wanted to write this post about loving the land you live on and accepting it because I've been going through this process of really accepting winter and how long it is here and um, loving the land as it is. And I thought, I don't know if I can say this because I don't think I could do that if I was in California. I think I would leave because the land, the air is literally killing you or making you sick. And if you were to go outside every day, it would be killing you and you have to stay inside for it not to. And I don't think I could accept that and love the land as it is. If I never could go outside and be on it, be in it, that would be so hard. Yeah. Loving a land that has a burn ecology, like loving a land that needs to burn. Right. That's, that's where I'm at right now is I've been reading this book about just like the indigenous ways of tending the lands now known as California and how burning was such a big part of it. Yeah. And also that all these, you know, grasses that dry out and make the golden hills are non-natives that Mm -hmm. really sucked up all the waters, you know, so just like see that over, you know, a period of probably 150 years, it created this powder keg Mm -hmm. that is, you know, highly developed so that just, you know, this land I love wants to burn. Mm-hmm. So to love the land is to like to just get out of the way of the flames. You know, that's, that's an interesting thing I've been, and grief stricken thing I've been sitting with. Mm-hmm. We can learn, especially from indigenous practices and indigenous teachers about fire ecology, but that's something that's, you know, we're, we have to look like way down the horizon, like down the road for that one. That's not now. That's not my child, yeah. my kid's childhood. That's a hundred years from now, you know, a hundred years ago, we were, you know, 
white men were poetically waxing on about virginal wilderness, which is not real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the land was always worked with and tended to and cared for. And so we created this idea of this other thing that is so pristine and virginal. We don't want to mm-hmm. touch it. Don't go near it. Let it stay a virgin. And then we started to encroach on it and, t- and take its resources. And now we're in this moment where we have to live it. We have to live what happened. We have to live those choices. But we can also look at how to restore relationship. And part of that is just getting out of the way when the flames come. Mm, and you're working with the bees, I mean. Oh, yeah, they don't do a wildfire well either. Yeah. You know, I think this is true for anybody who works with the land in any way, whether you're like a hobbyist gardener or you have a thing for bird watching or you're working with bees. Um, I, I think it's so imperative to stay with that love because it's making us confront climate change because we see it every day. And it means that I can't go through life with my blinders on. But it also means that I'm engaging with it. Does does that make sense? Again, I'm, I feel like we have to actively engage with what's happening. We have to move through the waves of grief and rage and despair and apathy, um, so that we can come to moments of like, well, what can we do? What what is possible in this moment? And I know both of you do that. You engage with the land, and how do we make that possible for our children? such a big dream of mine to be able to live with the land. Mm-hmm. And Megan, I love what you share about your land rituals, your ancestral land practices with your family. Mm-hmm. I'm like more of this content. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you have anything to share around, you know, your come from with that and, and how your cause your, your children are older than our, mine and Ari's like how yeah. they respond to that. Yeah, they really love it, and they listen to the stories. So, as Ari was saying earlier, the stories and the myths are so important. I mean, I told them a really short story, like a one-minute story, about how the winter witches are going to be chased away. We're going to chase them away with our spring boughs, and they're going to fly away, they're going to dance. I tell them they're going to have a dance party for one week and then they're going to come back as the spring maidens. And they, they hear all of it. And my two-year-old daughter repeated the entire story to our neighbor who was just coming to dump her compost in our compost bin. <laughs> um, so they hear the stories and they, stories are such, are just the best teaching tool and then activities too when you can shake a a stick at something or make smoke and they love burning herbs and creating smoke medicine. And um, I've been thinking about how can I really subtly make my local community on our block part of our family rituals just a tiny bit? where I'm not totally weirding them out, like, come to my pagan ceremony, wear all white, and, you know, (laughs) hold a pentacle or something. like. (laughs) Um, Last year, we had a maypole with ribbons, and we invited our neighbors, and, you know, we just danced around the maypole, and 
And here's the thing. If you have kids, it can be a kid activity, and then it's kind of not intimidating for the adults because, okay, it's just cute, and the kids are doing this cute thing, kind of how fairy tales are for kids, but they really used to be myths for adults, but then adults had to kind of package them as something for children so that they they could be preserved under repressive, you know, uh, over-cultures that were trying to stamp them out. So we have a kind of a community in my neighborhood where our kids, my five, well, he's six now. My six-year-old runs around with these other six-year-olds on our block and they go between each other's yards and they, I don't even know where he is. I'm, I'm calling three different parents saying, is my kid at your house? Is my kid at your house? I don't even know where he is half the time. And they just run around wild and it's really cool, but I want to get the parents more involved too. Like, you know, celebrating the seasons and being connected to the land in a non-intimidating way. So that we have a big Halloween party, our neighbor hosts. So we kind of already am cute, like plugged in to the, to the Samhain rituals, but I want to add some more. And I've been thinking about trying, like how there's different avenues for building community. Like you can have your spiritual community and start from there and know that you all kind of share the same spiritual practices and the same earth honoring values. Or you can try to take the people that you're literally living next to and then start from there and like try to introduce those things really gently and, um, and, and weave it in there. And I think that's kind of real community. Like my neighbor is bringing her compost and dumping it in my compost bin and keeping that out of the landfill and returning it to the land. And that's a real land practice, a real community land practice that we're doing together, even though maybe we're not ritualizing it. So yeah, I'm trying to kind of come at it from that side of things, like the actual people I live next to, even though we're not of the same philosophical background always. Yeah. I live on a hill where everyone just like <laughs> from their from their driveways. <laughs> hey, hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. All right. And I I too would want to shift that. Something about it makes me feel tired. But right, the people we live next to, that matters. Becca, I I signed up for your tending the hearth, tending the flame, tending the flame. I signed up for that and picked community. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell you how it goes. (laughs) I would love to hear. That one was really fun to do. Yeah. It was really, really fun to do. Thank you for signing up for that. Megan, I so want what you're describing. And I, again, always assumed I would have it. (laughs) Whoops. You know, the the kids running around the neighborhood and, and whatnot. But what you reminded me of, and I think it's important, you know, if we come back to this idea of like, how do we do it? You know, that was part of what this whole conversation came from is how do we do it? How did we do it? And I'm reminded of the part of me that used to like do the full pagan ritual and all that stuff. And it was like a multi-day event or a day long event. And it was this whole like thing that was like outside of my life. Like I went and go, I went to it and mm-hmm. I, I yeah. created it and it was fun. But the reality of having children is it, it's like, how do we just live it on a daily basis? So how do we have that, you know, in bulk morning where we just 
bring a little bit of our leftover like butter and cream to the windowsill and leave an offering. And we don't even have to necessarily create a big, beautiful altar, but it's just like, I'm doing what I can in the moment. And that moment yeah. of pause and that acknowledgement, my kid is seeing that that's enough that for now, that's a place to start using the tools we have in plain sight so that we're not going above and beyond trying to create the elaborate big thing that then never happens. Mm -hmm. So it was just, I really love watching what you do, Megan, with your kids um, because it, it seems so accessible. I have to be reminded all the time that it can be <laughs> these little moments, and these little stories. Thank you. And let's also have big events where children are not just an add-on. Like I remember, Rebecca, when you went to some event and you felt like you weren't as integrated into it. Like, yeah, bring your kid and good luck with that. And you come, come and join us when you can. And if you can't, that's okay. It's like, no, like the children are the center. Like let's have, let's have a big event, like a, a spirit weavers kind of a thing. And I know children are welcome there, but like a big ritual kind of thing, but really build it around children so that it's not like, yeah, you can bring them and hope they're attention span lasts and, but it's really for adults. I'd like to see more family centric rituals that that's a dream of mine particularly in these communities that like speak of like the matriarchy yeah and, like well then you gotta center it around the families yeah yeah that experience was um a beltane i travel to which when this is coming out i will be at and I remember everyone at the group being like, we're just doing so great with supporting Becca and the mm -hmm. baby. And I was just like sobbing in a tent trying to nap her because yeah. everyone else was like joyfully celebrating in the other house. And I was just like, this sucks so bad. And then when I brought up, it sucked. I was just met with like, well, then tell us what you need. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> that sucks. So we are actually, I'm on like the, the leadership council for this year's gathering. And mm. I was brought on the council because I was so vocal in how unhappy I was. Mm. And, um, Atlas continues to be the only baby there, but the other children are coming. And I was like, I need a devoted parent caretaker baby space mm -hmm. where she can regulate. And I don't want people to leave it alone. I want other people to move through it. But, like, that's Atlas's space. And, like, that's where her books and her comfort toys are. And it's not separate. Mm -hmm. It's in the space. Yeah. And I want her to be named in the prayers. And I want her to be included. And I want the song circle to be before 7 p.m. <laughs> so that she yes. can be there, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, I feel hopeful. I don't think we'll nail it. But I feel hopeful. That will get there. Mm. But also, I'm really hearing as well that, yeah, just I'm thinking about my my life and my grandiose rituals pre-baby. And now I'm just like, <laughs> it's okay for it to be small. Yeah. It's still meaningful. And that, and Megan, when you were a guest on my podcast, Mothering is Ancestral Reverence, you really nailed this for me. And for the audience, that's still one of the most downloaded episodes, by wow. the way. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it really resonated of like breastfeeding is an ancestral ritual. You know, mm. you are the mother tree. And all these little moments, like when your cat died and the way, and the way you brought in a grief ritual for your whole family mm-hmm. and your son brought his truck as an offering. I loved that so much. Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't need to be ornate because we are, we are living myth. We are ritual. We are living this life in a sacred way in every moment. Mm-hmm. Don't always need the regalia and the bells and smells and all of that. Mm. So I'll complete us there, although I think we could keep going. we also doing a giveaway. We're doing a giveaway, which I probably told you about in the intro to this episode. I most definitely did. It's on Instagram. So if you follow Becca P. Estrelli, forest.whisperer. Mm-hmm. That's right. And or beekeeping in skirts, one phrase. You'll see about this giveaway. I'm giving away a book and Megan and Ari will share what they're giving away. Um, because we love you and we want to share this beautiful work, uh, and this episode out. So Megan, maybe you can share what you're working on mm-hmm. as your creativity is coming up again and what you're giving away. I am going to teach a class, a one time live class, and it will be recorded on mothering as ceremony, which is really exactly what we're talking about, but sort of um, making all of the aspects of the journey into and through motherhood ritualized. And so I'm going to talk about what I've done and my research into ancestral birthing practices and pregnancy practices and how to how to incorporate those into mothering and making mothering itself a ritual. So I'm going to give away a spot in that class. And your what's your website again? Mythictime.com. Cool. And then Ariella, what is your website? Honeybeewild. Cool.com. And you're giving away your lecture series. Sure. Um, yeah. So I do a lecture series called Kindred Bees. Uh, it's monthly and you can, you, you get the whole thing. So it's seven different lectures on bees. You don't have to be a beekeeper, but it's various topics like communicating with bees at the hive, communicating with bees away from the hive, understanding swarms, the Melissa bee priestesses, that sort of stuff. Wonderful. Yeah. And I'm giving away a copy of Root and Ritual. Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self, my book, hardcover, color. You can check the show notes of this episode, belongingpodcast.com, to find out more about each of us and the giveaway. Megan, Ariella, I adore you. I appreciate you. I am dreaming of us together, like circling the maple in the forest. (laughs) In a climate-safe world with our beautiful babies. And I also very much appreciate this time in the virtual mammoth bone tent with you. And all of our other conversations we have that aren't recorded that have meant so much to me and have made me feel less alone in this. So thank you. Thank you, Becca. Thank you for creating the space for us to gather and share and talk. And Megan for the idea. And also... You know, here we are waxing poetic about community. We know each other because of social media community. <laughs> Look at that. There we are. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Becca.
Thank you so much for listening. In a time when our attention is being pulled in so many directions, I feel honored you chose to devote some of yours here with me. If you want to check out show notes or listen to past episodes, go to belongingpodcast.com. And if you like what we talk about here and want to know more, you can subscribe to my newsletter at beccapiastrelli.com. I'll be with you again soon.